0: Well, welcome to yet another Biota podcast. I had promised that I, promised, promised is probably the right word. I had promised that I wouldn't record anything until I got to the Bay Area, but uh, it's always such a pleasure to talk to Bruce Daymer. I wanted to have a quick chat with him just to get the latest update associated with the chemical EvoGrid. Hello, Bruce.
1: Hello, Tom.
0: So you've been doing a lot of traveling recently, and my understanding is while you've been on flights, you've been meditating and uh, perhaps thinking about what is yet to come with the EvoGrid. Well, first, I I think I haven't talked to you formally since you, uh, since you were awarded your PhD, so I I need to offer you a congratulations to start off with.
1: Thank you, Tom. Thanks very much. So what's the next step for the EvoCrit? Well, through the entire process of of doing the PhD, um, you know, we, we had success. I mean, we. Uh, Our modest success was, and this is with Peter Newman and and the whole team, you know, there's Miroslav and there's Ryan and John Graham running the servers at UC San Diego. But we went, in in the last four months before I submitted the thesis, we managed to show that a molecular dynamics simulation grid with lots and lots of thousand atom volumes with the right tuning uh, could go through multiple thresholds of complexity. And that was all uh, the formation of uh, not only bonds, uh, but different molecular products. But whenever the, the system would tap out, say at 60 molecules, our search function, our hill climbing function, allowed it to find a higher maximum and kept going and going and going. And I think that we reached 189 uh, molecules formed of different sizes, some of them up to uh, five bonds. And that used up half of the the contents of uh, the volumes. So it it was the idea that you could create a, a digital primordial soup that would get richer and richer a little faster, in fact, a lot faster. So the PhD thesis, it was a Hollywood finish in that literally two weeks before the thesis was due, we saw the curves go up and up and up and up through our previous maximum of last year, and it busted right through and I was able to put that in the thesis and talk- talk about it that it was a Kaufman correlated landscape and Stuart Kaufman had helped quite a bit at the end uh, and the thesis had all the bells and whistles you could want in a thesis, from you know citations and quotations from Freeman Dyson to the same from Stuart Kaufman and nice. Wrapped up results with a result with a bow on it. So the defense went actually very well. I mean, I had high confidence in the work and uh, and all that. But then, now this is interesting. So that went well. So the digital, the all digital evil grid went well. But I was sitting on the park bench in Montpellier, France, at the Origins 2011 conference with another another uh, PhD postdoc, another student, and I said, you know what, computers just aren't going to be good enough to simulate the molecular dynamics necessary to simulate and find pathways to an origin of life, to an artificial origin of life. It just isn't going to get there. And I started to think about how can we do, therefore, how can we do thousands and thousands of small chemical experiments which could be watched by computers, designed by human brains, and where the experiments could do the hill climbing method. And what came to me on that park bench was, hey, if you blew up a balloon, you could squirt a small amount of solution in there, even a rock sample to create a shoreline simulation. You could put the balloons on tiny little rocker panels, and you could control uh, samples that come out of these balloons on, t- on timers and go through microscopes and analyzers, and computers could watch them, and computers could automatically make thousands of balloon experiments on the cheap, and therefore was born the chemical Evo Grid, which you could call the Chemo Grid, I guess.
0: So there are a number of points there. I, g- I guess I'm. I'm an optimist with regards to computational power. So, I mean, when you preface saying that the computational power isn't there, you're denying the possibility of the computational power actually being there. And certainly, for folks who've listened to a variety of the EvoGrid discussions, this does come down to the kind of chemical simulations that you are using. So perhaps the computer power is actually there. It just doesn't exist in the kind of scalable fashion that you need currently for the EvoGrid. But moving on to the chemical idea the balloons are they I mean I I had a similar thought actually when I was sitting on your decking um what February this year when you were talking about the mixing suit that would be required to actually create the Evo grid uh creations block of editor. and I guess my thought there was very similar to what you see with these kind of automated uh I don't know maybe 100 by a hundred sheets of little glass uh, vessels being squirted by various chemicals. I kind of saw that uh, rotating uh, method of actually creating these tens, if not thousands, of simulation environments on the fly. So this is really what you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about why the balloon is important?
1: Well, the balloons, this is not why why it, it matters. The balloon, you can blow up with any gas you want simulating say an early atmosphere without oxygen so you can control a little bit of the growth of of contamination you know little bugs that are going to be growing in there but balloons are cheap they are also positive pressure so the positive pressure matters because you can keep outside stuff from getting in you can tell when a balloon isn't secure because it will gradually be going you know getting smaller with that positive pressure, you can also, uh, and we built a rig, we built a complete rig that did this uh, in the last two, three weeks. Um, you can get the sample that you want to look at squirted out through uh, plastic, you know, vinyl tubing very easily and then returned back to the balloon. Now, you can use Pyrex glassware too with stoppers in it. We built a couple of shells here that had Pyrex uh, vessels on them and stoppers. And we actually, this is TJ Magalanes and, and me, TJ's my local mechanical and construction genius, and we took this on as a project. So we built this, we built a shelf, I would say, uh, complete with a, a pump system and a little motor to rock it back and forth to simulate the wave action. I think the total cost was uh, twenty-five dollars or so for a complete setup of one 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 volume. So molecules can simulate themselves in real time. That's 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 the real benefit. One of the co- the reasons I'm I'm pursuing this is Dave Deemer's comment to me at the Origins meeting in France was, "Did you know that if you squirt, you know, a drop of phospholipid." into solution you can create 1 trillion containers 1 trillion vesicles and i thought that is a lot of com- you know that is a lot of computing and combinatorial chemistry uh, so basically what we're doing now is a att- trim, attempting to build freeman dyson's garbage bag experiment where you know freeman wrote of course in his origins of life book 20 you know 20 plus years ago that if you could that nature probably uh could create a living a working cell statistically i e you you take a trillion trillion garbage bags and fill them with random or almost semi sort of random uh dirty water, and in one of those it's likely that the dirty water is going to statistically uh duplicate its population through the presence of catalysts and it somehow, uh, the vesicle, uh, it grows naturally because it adds more lipid. Uh, the vesicle will become, uh, uh, will double itself. And you have the beginnings of a line of protocells. So I wrote a whole poster on this. I had a vision for this a year ago on a long flight from China as how this would work. But now, now that the PhD is done, uh, I've kind of determined that the next step is to actually put computers where they're appropriate. Computers, I don't believe in the next 20 or 30 years, computers are going to be able to do the kind of molecular simulation needed for origin of life work, which is, you know, you're talking weeks or even years of continuous simulation of volumes that are huge. Uh, So you're many, many orders of magnitude short on computing power. But what computers are good at is search and selection. So the computers will watch the results of these many thousands of chemo grid experiments and say, hey, that balloon there is really producing. So we must have got the, the salinity right, the, the temperature right, the wave action right, the mineral surface right, and the contents right. Let's blow up, or maybe even automatically, let's make a rack of 500 more of those and and wiggle the parameters a little you know change the salinity change the, and see if we get an even more productive it produces more dirty garbage bags um, so that's the idea that's how you'd implement hill climbing the algorithm of the phd thesis in chemistry
0: so a number of questions come from this firstly when you describe them as balloons you're actually describing something that is very, very small, but chemically formed to encapsulate something, which is then injected into it. Am I correct in that understanding?
1: Yeah, in fact, the first one we made was just ordinary clear party balloons, uh, you know, latex balloons that you could easily blow up, uh, and then you you bit, really wrap a rubber band around the. The end of the balloon onto a vinyl tubing, clear vinyl tubing, uh, and then you put a stopper or a stopcock on the tubing. And, and you So you can blow it up through the tubing, you can even inject what you want to have injected through the tubing. Uh, although if you're going to put a piece of rock in there, you generally put it in before you, you put the rubber band on. But there you have it. There you have a small, simulated you know, primordial soup volume And then you can put it on these really simple uh, uh, lucite shells with little motor drives and camshafts under them. And you can have a whole set of shells, each of which are going to be rocking back and forth or being agitated at different times. And then you have one great big pressure vessel that actually has a valve on it that can force material out of one particular balloon. And then put it back. Uh, So very, very quickly you could take a sample. It might be 70 Celsius. It might be quite hot. Uh, Take it out, run it through a glass tube that a microscope is looking at. It counts the, uh, the garbage bags. It counts the little containers that were made and puts them back or samples those little garbage bags for more analysis.
0: So, when you're talking about a balloon, you're talking about something that is in physically visible scale, not something yeah, that's absolutely tiny.
1: Right, and in fact, what, the interesting thing is, because you're using balloons, you could make a large little ocean, or a very, very tiny ocean. You could, you know, you think of your average packet of party balloons, the ones that are barely blown up are kind of a thimbleful of volume, but you could even do something on the micro, micro scale. Not, not approaching microfluidics. Microfluidics are expensive. That's the, the the problem. And they're once you've built them, you know, that's what you're stuck with. But what you will eventually get down to microfluidic type arrays. The chemo grid as it's as it's designed and being built right now, at least the prototypes are for cheap and dirty, maker fair type people to, you know, watch a video on YouTube and then in their basement or their barn or their attic, they could actually assemble a rack of these things and with a laptop drive the whole thing. So it could be done at home. So it's like origins of life at home. Now, here's the interesting thing, Tom. Then you get into crowdsourcing. So if, I, if my experiment be run 24 hours a day, generated results to the web that said, oh, I'm getting, you know, 10 trillion garbage bag uh, capsules full of uh, consistent contents in one of my balloons those results are published along with how to you know what the starting parameters and what the ongoing experiment was and so anybody could suck those those things down and make a new rack of that experiment so you could get fully distributed crowdsourced uh origin of life uh w- what's called combinatorial chemistry uh things going on using stuff from Costco and Home Depot and you know and all that stuff and it wouldn't be up to the standards of a laboratory setup but really all you care about is can you make uh protocells can you show protocells dividing and and what I what I call the eternal bubbles test if you see bubbles in solution, and they seem to be, you know, bubbles sometimes split up and divide, but if the bubbles never pop, if there's always one bubble there, you have something going on. You have you have a container that is dividing, growing and dividing, and never getting destroyed by the extent, you know, uh, physical or chemical challenges it's being dealt with. Dealt in the environment so something's going on with the contents of that container that is keeping that intact and you have you have really got something so if somebody sees an eternal bubble uh... that's your starting point you really got something
0: so in terms of I'm, i'm trying to think of how to actually frame the contamination question but i guess the way that i would probably frame it is to say in contrast to what you're talking about for example the human genome would be orders of magnitude easier i'm assuming is is that safe to say
1: yeah in, in fact there's been a a number of youtube videos and i think a ted talk recently on uh doing uh, inorganic origin of life things and i think that's that's a lot harder than those guys are Right, so this, this is hard. This is as hard as it
0: gets. Mm. Returning to the idea of the human genome sequencing as being easier, considerably easier, the ability for people in their homes to sequentially, I don't know, sequence components of the human genome from things that they have purchased from Costco seems to be a little bit further than what could be imaginable. And I guess my concern with regards to this process is it would be probably relatively easy to create a series of these uh, experiments uh, done the world over by people who were clearly passionate probably as you have noted for a little more than about 25 US dollars. But the contaminants in the environment were probably I mean, I think of brewing beer as a good example of this. In Germany, when they brew beer, they literally just open large vents above the vats, in some cases, and let natural yeast fly in in order to create uh, particular flavours of beer. There is enough natural yeast just in the air for them to start uh, beer fermentation, or at least continue it on. And I guess my sense is that we are surrounded by these kind of contaminants, they could very well because they are um, extremely uh, well uh, voracious and, and virile. Fundamentally, they are able to survive uh, in environments that we can barely comprehend in terms of our particular size domain, the kind of human size. So, I guess my sense with what you're describing is that the contaminants in the environment are probably far more likely to show their virility in these kind of tests and actually. Uh, create probably quite interesting surveyings of uh, the kind of contaminants in the environment, but in terms of actually finding meaningful origins of life through that, I think the the threshold for contamination is probably far higher than the threshold for actual discovery. Well, what are your thoughts with regards to that?
1: Well, a joke that I told um, our little working group here was, you know, they're saying... Well, what if there is a, a bacterium or an E. coli or, you know, whatever in the system and it goes out in our sample and gets seen by the microscope? How will we know it's not an origin, uh, a new origin or a genesis? And I said, well, it'll be the size of the Queen Mary and the size and complexity of the Queen Mary versus basically a rubber boat. So you'll see this gigantic you know, chemical machine go by and we'll know that it's not something we made. And what's interesting is, so it's easy to spot them. I mean, life is, life even though in a single cell is on the huge macro scale and we'll easily ignore that. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, while you can try to have a, you know, you can autoclave your equipment, you can have everything, you know, done with a temperature bath, Uh, you can have it blown up without, you know with a non-oxygenated atmosphere t- which will definitely slow down because you know even you know there's anaerobic bacteria of course but it'll slow things down so you won't just basically get especially if you have illuminated your balloon you won't get all this blue green algae forming inside necessarily uh, in that case but um, it will be a problem um, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to see a chemical effect or an idea of chemical replication and chemical lines of of a complex structure, not nearly like a cell, that emerge. And even if it's contaminated, the irony is, if if the single-celled organism turns around and starts eating up your vesicles or your capsules, you'll know that you have a bio signature. You know that that it's seeing those things as food is probably a good thing. Of course, they will have not a not a chance uh, against that single-celled queen mary that's turning and eating them and of course this is where uh, you can assuage all fears about this stuff because you know these these things that you make these eternal soap bubbles that wouldn't have a chance at surviving in the natural world they would need another you know hundred thousand or hundred
0: million years of
1: of evolution to even get up to the point where they and perhaps they could never compete with terran biota.
0: Returning to the notion of the genome sequencing as being a threshold because I do think it's interesting in terms of technological steps that although we, we try to think of and uh, occasionally surf on um, you know, paradigm breaks and these kind of things, the, the kind of sequence associated with technology and particularly biotechnology seems to be relatively uh, well understood. The idea that you could purchase a kit and start a component of the human genome sequencing is still not something that is considered. And I guess what you're describing seems possible, but whether or not it is actually credible with the existing technology and the existing environments I guess is still my, my threshold um, with, with regards to this discussion.
1: Oh, you know what? What we did, and we had the same thought. You know, are we crazy? Kind of thing. So, TJ and I built this this rack with three shells and a motor drive uh, driving only one of the shells with a light on it, and a pool pump to actually occasionally sample the uh, the little primordial soup. And I, I took it over to Dave Deemer, and set it up in his house. And he walked into the room, and he went, "Holy cow!" And he said, uh, this is amazing because we are building something uh, similar at UC Santa Cruz right now. And we designed it, and we're going to have our first test. You know, We we built it, and we're going to start testing it in two weeks. And, in fact, on Thursday, TJ and I are going there to look at what they've done because TJ has expertise on uh, controllers for stepper motors, and they don't. So he may be able to help them. And what they've done is some kind of uh, a lot closer to what you were talking about on our deck here. Uh, It's a motor driven small little containment unit uh, that has uh, very very small volumes that can be moved around CO2 injected and various things. I don't want to give away his whole design but um, it's very similar. It's, it's, It's combinatorial chemistry with lots of tiny volumes. So this seems to be in the air And in fact, the book for Joseph Seckbach and Dick Gordon, the next book, the one that I'll be editing, uh, I've come up with the title Genesis Engines, Uh, and it's the subtitle, something like computation and and chemistry and, you know, combinatorial chemistry and in the search for life's origins. Uh, So what I'm going to try to do, and there may not be enough projects to actually make this book even feasible, but I'm. I'm going out there to contact people that I met in France that I've met over the years and say, Are you building a motorized, you know, combinatorial chemistry setup that would be like a Genesis engine? Are you doing that? And if can I convince you to write a chapter for this book? Because then we can assemble all these people. I can come up with some basic philosophy, design philosophy. An approaches to building Genesis machines and uh, get a book out sometime next year and that would help solidify this as an approach in origin of life research.
0: So returning to the mechanical form, because I think this is an interesting point, the mechanical form, as you know, it's associated with uh, both getting the uh, matter into the balloon and also shifting matter from the balloon and then agitating the balloon, This is all relatively trivial mechanically, as you've described. I mean, it's relatively cheap to make, and the principles associated with it are uh, pretty fundamental. But in terms of actually sampling the, the chemistry that comes out, are there small USB devices or something like that that is easily connected to a computer that could then provide, I don't know, chemical spectrum information or this kind of... Uh, detailed information, and in terms of uh, putting the mechanics aside, putting the uh, extraction and, uh, and introduction mechanisms aside, the actual methods for analyzing the chemistry that comes through, what kind of technology exists there currently?
1: Well, you probably do this in two phases. The first phase is the macro phase where for a very cheap USB microscope, relatively cheap, and you're not talking millions, you're talking thousands. Uh, you could watch uh, vesicles going by. You could watch the action of these relatively large structures, and if you're looking for a macro effect. You're looking for vesicles that persist for long periods of time, where you can observe spontaneous division. And this is this is seen pretty easily. You know, you can throw a mixture derived from eggs uh, into into water and heat them up a little bit and you can watch all this wonderful lipid membranes uh, undulating and forming into ca- encapsulations. You can do this. It's really a wonderful thing. It's like the old '60s uh, psychedelic uh, oil and li- water shows. Um, and then, and then you you so you have that phase one is this sort of macro effect. Phase two, where you do need million-dollar microscopes and mass specs and things like this, is where you find a solution where. These bubbles are persisting for long periods of time. Now you need to look inside them. You need to try to figure out the chemodynamics of what is going on that is allowing this to happen. And then you 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 cart your sample off to the real lab, and you hope that it's you know survives long enough. And then the real lab looks at it. But what you've done is you've gotten all the way. You've gotten the formula to make make these capsules. Anybody can then try to, you know, duplicate that experiment and check it, check out your your methodology. You know, a real chemist could do that in a sense at that point end to end. Hmm. But the the combinatorial genesis engine got you a long way.
0: It, it's interesting that you think of this in visual terms because my immediate response was that you had. Some means of sampling that didn't require visual information. But visual information with regards to these kind of things is relatively relatively rough and difficult, and as you point out based on the resolution, whereas my sense is, and I don't really have a good sense of this, but there should be relatively cheap USB well ch- chips basically that enable a kind of chemical sampling just from my understanding of a a variety of of things that are tuned, I mean, even things like breathalysers in cars and these kind of things, that there are ways of sampling chemistry to probably a relatively good resolution, although I'm fundamentally ignorant of this. And the other interesting thing about doing a chemical sampling or a, a molecular sampling versus a rough visual sampling is the data is probably... I'm just trying to think computationally easier to process. So once you could actually even molecular weight, you would be able to see more interesting information. I mean, perhaps this is just a a kind of perverse physics background as opposed to what uh, what normal people may say would be. uh, Maybe maybe this is the difference between physics and. and, uh, and biology fundamentally, that with biology you want to be able to see these things, and with physics you want some graph that will immediately point out these things. But this seems very fascinating, Bruce, in terms of the notion of the EvoGrid as a, I don't know, an institution, so to speak, a, a gathering of minds and researchers and these kind of things. You seem to be moving away from that idea in some sense, more into an almost an open source chemistry. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: What really occurred to me on that park bench was, I'm doing, in the Evo Grid for the PhD, we're doing everything in, in computation. This, the volumes of, of atomic molecular simulation are computed. The algorithm to observe the volumes is in, in software. Uh, And the selecting mechanism and the mechanism to build new experiments was also in software. So it was a wholly, the chemo grid was completely digital. And it just really, all we could do was produce a few products. A thousand atom volumes is, you need, you know, two, three orders of magnitude more volumes to do anything significant in origin of life. So it was like, okay, we're still doing computation, but we've got to use computers for what they're appropriate for. They're not appropriate, at least in my opinion, to simulate the molecular milieu. They're just, they're just not there. The von Neumann architecture or GPUs or whatever you say call it just can't cut it for this kind of thing. It can, of course, for you know modeling the transmission across membranes and cells and and protein folding, and those those things, of course, it can, but the scale of which you need to do things in origin of life and how many experiments you need to run just screams out for doing the chemical part with, chem- with molecules, with chemicals themselves. They can simulate themselves. So then you get really good at computers automatically looking at what is going on and, and using, you know, the search functions using teleological set end goals uh, that the human mind has come up with. So then everything seems to be appropriate. The molecules do your computation. The computers do search, analysis, and selection. So you're, you can leave the thing work in your attic running overnight. And you just hear little clicks as samples are going out and, and, and shells are moving, and you watch it on your, on your, your mobile phone. And so that's going twenty four hours a day, but your your mind designed the experiment, so everybody is now working at the appropriate level, and the thing is really rocking because in the end you if you did a, if you did the pure Evo grid where you simulated you simulated something important in in software, you'd still have to go into the lab and try and see if it actually works with the molecules. so why not use just use molecules as origin of life computing engines?
0: I guess the only flaw associated with that is that what you get in computation is, in some regards, scalable, independent of space, irrespective, well, the computers have a physical space. But what you're describing here in terms of physical simulations, how many how many actual simulation iterations did you do for the EVO grid for the PhD? It was hundreds of thousands, wasn't it?
1: We did hundreds of thousands. Well, giving this, there was, each 1,000-atom volume went through a 1,000 time steps on each iteration, and we did hundreds of thousands of, of iterations. So, you know, it actually comes down to, you know, billions and billions and billions of, of interactions, uh, most discarded, mm. most of which were discarded. But in uh, the metaphor
0: that you've described associated with the chemo grade. You would need to have a similar number of experiments physically, wouldn't you?
1: You might. Um, could you get by with a rack of twenty-five, twenty-five uh, small volumes, twenty-five balloons? Call them balloons. They might not be balloons. Uh, could you? What could you achieve with with ten? What could you achieve with a hundred? Um, you. It might be surprising. Uh, one of the things that always surprised me is. Uh, you know, Dave Diemer and these other presenters, Jack Shawstack at Harvard, uh, all these people, I mean, they show stuff on screen that blows your mind. The, Jack uh, was able to do experiments with this fellow named Bartel in the early 90s where trillions and trillions and trillions of ribosomes uh, ribozymes were made and kind of did, underwent molecular evolution and selection at the molecular level. And just with a single column, a single column of of fluid, and they have trillions and trillions of these things, and they sample them and say, look, there's whole populations uh, in here that are selecting out based on our little column. So these people have just immense computing power available to do this kind of experiment. Uh, the, The analysis is the difficult thing. The designs of the experiments is the difficult thing. Sampling the right space is a difficult thing, but you know, I think you could. Who knows? You might be able to get quite far with fifty little uh, simulated uh, volumes, or f- fifty real physical balloons. You might actually shock and surprise yourself how far you get.
0: It's interesting. I'm I'm currently doing a probably second to final edit of the uh, first. What what I think will be called Artificial Life Conversations from the Biota Podcast. And Jeff Kloon's discussion was particularly fascinating in this light because he described the creation of the, uh, the artificial life unit at MSU associated with the reverse problem that you had people that had been dealing with real E. coli to look at uh, biological processes and realise that computational simulation of E. coli specifically was in fact far cheaper. I guess yeah, it is an interesting, it is an interesting problem that some things are faster in computation and some things are faster in chemistry. But I think you're still yet to convince me, Bruce, particularly in terms of as you've described potentially, you know, billions worth of these environments that were created through the EvoGrid PhD process that you would then need to mirror in some kind of uh, well physical setup irrespective of how small it was i think the the numbers are still in favor of computation and maybe maybe this is just by own particular perversion but the thing that interests me in terms of the weak point of what you've described with the computational evo grid is the reliance of off the shelf physics simulation and certainly again through these uh, transcripts that i'm editing the discussion associated with chemistry uh, poor understanding of simulated chemistry but also the potential for new simulated chemical models seems to be a you know a great section and, and point of research for people that are interested, I guess, in the cool component of what we used to talk about. So, Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking more with you on location, actually. I mean, one of the luxuries of moving to the Bay Area is having a density of artificial life-related folk to have these kind of rap sessions with. And my hope is to take a digital recorder and perhaps uh, let's get, uh, get a number of us together and particularly I mean, the stuff that you're talking about associated with computational chemical origins of life i mean there's a good crossover with regards to a number of folk uh, in the bay area that do things outside the traditional artificial life spectrum so you had anticipated i mean i think we've been talking about this for the past three or four years actually doing a kind of speaking session at your farm i mean you do have the area for folks who want to come into to do talks, to actually do that to a, a relatively public crowd.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's that's uh, where all the infrastructure is being done for that, for some small, small
0: intimate but intense uh, sessions. Well, Bruce, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you next on location. Good talking with you. Thank you, Tom.